Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. People need to take, like I said, uh, you know, ownership of their own health and, and run with it. You know? These things are all early warning signs. And the thing is, we've been living with these early warning signs for decades. So I'm extremely excited to be here this afternoon with Christian Thompson, who is a former world kickboxing champion and a health consultant who specializes in stress, digestion and immunity. Um, he came to this line of work after having his own battle with heavy metal poisoning um, and has a very solid mantra of testing, test, don't guess. Um, it's great to have you on the show, Christian. And um, I can't wait to dive in and share all your wisdom, especially at this time. We're, we're filming this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. Many people are quarantined at home and are looking to really enhance their immunity at this point of time and actually boost their health, both their mental and physical health. So welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. And so I guess the place I'd like to start is how you went from being a kickboxing champion to actually having your own health battle with heavy metal poisoning and, and how that came about and how you managed to solve your own health issues. Well, I mean, uh, with, when it, whenever you have uh, a health issue like heavy metal poisoning, it's always difficult to really understand how something that even happens, you know. Um, but for me, it was to do with a bad mercury filling, mercury amalgam filling. Um, basically was being degraded from the inside out, as it were, because it wasn't filled uh, well enough. So there was gaps in between it and bacteria was degrading it from inside the tooth. Um, and through, I, so I had this heavy metal leakage into my body and my body was getting worse and worse and worse over years, over about a 12-year period. And no one really could figure out why. And uh, as I was saying to you before, uh, I mean, I was falling through the gaps in terms of uh, being able to get appropriate treatment for what was happening. And I had to take complete ownership of what was going on with my health and solve the problem myself. Um, How did that kind of like start initially? Because obviously you're very fit, you're world kickboxing champion. What were the symptoms for people listening that you began to have initially that were obviously flying under the radar in terms of the medical community? So uh, mainly started with anemia-like symptoms. Um, uh, my, uh, one of the things that we were noticing, that very pale skin, um, uh, tired a lot of the time, you know, just energetically lethargic, um, struggled struggle to wake up. You know, that was a big, big symptom for, for a long time. People, we just thought I liked to sleep. You know, that's what we originally thought. And then, um, uh, you know, I, I was still quite young at that time, you know, uh, so this was building up over from like years from even when I was late, late teens into early 20s. So, you know, it wasn't just like it was uh, a teenage thing of not wanting to wake up. It started to become more of a progressive problem. You know, um, I had real struggles concentrating on any form of reading. Now I'm dyslexic, uh, now diagnosed uh, when I was uh kids you know um and struggled through school you know trying to uh sort, like you know sort my way out through the, the sort of standard academic rigmarole uh for how it's set up for dyslexic people isn't always the best but you know again my my inability to concentrate or read a, the document we just thought was basically in and around that but 
Um, once we solved my heavy metal problem, we found that I no longer had any of those physical learning problems that, uh, that came with what we thought was dyslexia. In actual fact, it was a reduced uh, cognitive capacity from the heavy metals. And so we had uh, those problems. And then as it got into its real, like, sort of chrysalis, the, the worst point of the symptoms, I was borderline narcoleptic, where I was falling asleep standing up, quite literally, at wow. the worst point. You know, and so heavy neurological symptoms were basically uh, the, what was going on. And it got to a point where I think it was affecting, obviously, my brain more and more and more. Um, but generally, the whole nervous system, uh, even today, I have to be careful with uh, excessive sympathetic load, so stress, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, after years of dealing with uh, uh, what was basically chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome onset due to mercury poisoning, um, I have a, a, an epigenetic profile, as you were, of being susceptible to high stress. Right. Okay. And so, well, how did you first? I mean, in terms of we had these, you have these symptoms coming on. At what point did you realize? What, how how young were you when this mercury filling was put in? And um, it was obviously a gradual creep over time. Yeah. What was the point at which then you realized? Because I mean, there must be plenty of people listening who you know maybe do have this issue. So it would have been around 10, 12 years old where I started to get fillings realistically. Okay. I mean, there were problems with my teeth from, uh, from a young age. You know, um, I, I had a, a, a lower amount of enamel on my teeth, uh, sorts of things like this, uh, so that, that set me up for needing more fillings probably than other kids. I had a sweet tooth. There's no doubt about that, you know. So I probably ate too many sweets, for sure. But um, anyway, we've got the fillings, you know, that, that time of my life and gradually you know uh, as I got older got got into martial arts uh, became really good at it there was no reason anymore that I should have health problems when I was pretty much eating and training like a professional athlete you know I mean I, I, I trained eight hours a day six days a week at, at my best you know mm. and um, even then uh, we thought that I was overtraining because I was getting injured too much. So then we cut the training down, but problems weren't changing. So no matter what we did to try and alter my lifestyle, nothing was getting better. It was only ever getting worse, despite the improvements in lifestyle, nutrition, and uh, physical activity that we were making. Interesting. And so how did you actually get rid of the mercury that had built up because it actually can be quite difficult to do so yes it is very difficult and very tricky and i definitely don't suggest doing it the the on your own like i did <laughs> you know uh, i made mistakes a few times and suffered um, yeah. but basically chelation therapy i used mainly edta um, uh, to get rid of it i did that both unsuccessfully and successfully and there's a few different ways you can go about it, but EDTA, EDTA is probably one of the strongest chelating chemicals that you can use mm -hmm. to do that. But if you don't have the requisite underlying health for your organs to physically remove the heavy metals with the aid of the chelation therapy, then you're only going to make yourself worse. The first time I did it, I was better for three days, and then I was flat out, uh, flattened onto a bed for three days because my body 
started to move the, the metals around 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 due to the calculation, but didn't have the capacity to get rid of them. So it only just went and caused more damage. Yeah. So it is very important that you seek the appropriate help to do that if you are suffering from heavy metals. And so in terms of now, obviously you help people with optimizing their health and getting back on track, particularly with these people who maybe in the medical community are sort of often cast aside. They don't know and they don't know how to deal with it. What are the parameters? Because you mentioned the interesting there, you didn't feel that your organs had the capacity to deal with this. When you're looking at someone from a functional perspective in terms of their blood and their urine, what markers are you looking for to see how kind of um, in what good health they are in at that point in time? I mean, we look at a whole range of markers. One of the first things uh, we need to do is assess symptoms. Now, while symptoms are subjective, they are still a very good indicator of where we need to look because at the end of the day, that's what we want to change. You know, um, while your objective markers are incredibly important for us to know and, and, and incredibly important for us to make sure they're in a good standing, the symptoms are what you really want to be different. You don't want to feel like rubbish anymore. You know, you want to wake up and have energy. You don't want to have energy fluctuations through the day. You want to have good cognition. You you want to be able to eat the foods without feeling like, you know, your stomach's about to explode or you're burping or farting all the time, you know, or having diarrhea because of it. So it's these symptoms realistically that we want to get rid of. So they are a very important starting place that we need to look at first. Once we've got the symptoms, we can then look at, um, which markers are going to be more important to look at or which systems are going to be more important to assess and which markers are related to those systems. So just for example, we might look at um, different liver, liver enzymes. So for uh, G, uh, GGT, which is basically one of the liver enzymes that we look at, that can be uh, very he heavily related to uh, glut uh, glutathione or uh, basically uh, oxidative stress. You know? So we can look at that in a perspective and then compare that to uh, uh, dehydrogenase enzymes and, and, and other liver enzymes as well to see what sort of position um, that your oxidative stress is in, whether you're producing enough bile, whether you uh, have more peripheral base stress, whether you have more centralized base stress in terms of the nervous system and general musculature. We can look to see uh, how well you're metabolizing fats, you know, so your fatty acid status, uh, and your fatty acid metabolism, your cholesterol status, all these things, they all have implications on, on one another. So looking at any individual marker is always uh, narrow-sighted. We want to look at uh, a larger perspective, but that larger perspective has to have relevance to the symptoms that you're suffering. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can just test everything and go thousands of pounds and not really know what direction we're traveling. Yeah, and I think these are the kind of symptoms, aren't they, that many people overlook because they think they're going through either a stressful period or they're maybe a bit more tired. They maybe got young children, for example, and you can kind of write it off um, yeah. a little bit as I suppose in the initial stages you were doing was, am I overtraining and you're trying to fix it, but the symptoms just don't go away regardless yeah. of what you do. So people should be um, aware of that. Now, currently with everything that's going on um, with the coronavirus, I know you've been and I've been following your work closely on on instagram you've been looking quite in quite a bit of detail in immunity and immune function um what would be your best advice to people who are looking to strengthen their immune systems in this current climate well the first thing is to assess 
why your immunity may not be optimal. So, for instance, uh, vitamin C, amazing uh, immune-boosting supplement, great, but is that the problem? You know, is taking vitamin C actually going to boost your personal immunity? If your personal immunity is being degraded because you have congested liver, then vitamin C isn't going to do anything for you. In the same same thing can come from gastrointestinal function. Uh, we just I was just uh, on another webinar and talk uh, this at lunchtime just before now, and we were discussing um, how fifty percent of the lymphoid tissue is in uh, the intestines, the intestinal tract. So you know fifty percent of our immune tissue is in the intestinal tract. Our intestinal tract itself is a barrier against the outside world, despite it running through the middle of us. Mm -hmm. So technically our food goes into the same context as our environment. Our environment is very indicative of our own health status. So the impact that our food environment has on our immune system has huge potential. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to look at in, uh, making an intervention or improving someone's immune system, there is no shotgun advice that we could ever give that's going to be it's going to be good enough. You know, it may work for some, but it won't work for more. That's the problem we come with a lot of the health advice that we get that we come across today is it's far too generalized, and that people uh, are trying to oversimplify things to sell tickets, get bums on seats, or something in that vein. People need to take, like I said, uh, you know, ownership of their own health and, and run with it, you know. And investigate it. And a lot yeah. of people, I mean, a lot of people will associate the liver just with with alcohol. Um, yeah. And that's obviously a very simplistic thing to look at because um, before you actually start seeing markers going in the wrong direction uh, on a medical test with your GP, for example, I think you'd have to be pretty far down the road of oh, yes. extreme alcohol consumption before it would show on those tests. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, no, completely. I mean, in fact, I think that fatty liver is uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver is a much greater blight to uh, health in general than people realize. I think you, you, it, if you're overweight, you know, uh, say uh, for a female, uh, say above th uh, above thirty percent, and for a male above twenty five percent, you know, body fat you're within you're within that within that range, it's probably more likely you have fatty liver than you know. Mm -hmm. In in today's current world, with the type of diets that most people have. And that's important because that will inhibit the detoxification pathways, as well as loading the liver up already with what you're putting into your body yeah. to get to you, that size. Yeah, you, you've, you've basically um, completely uh, destroyed your capacity for metabolic flexibility. Um, you, uh, by, by over-congestion of the liver, you completely destroy your capacity for detoxification. You blunt your ability to produce bile, which will blunt your ability to um, emulsify and then absorb fats. Now, one thing I find is incredibly common is a, a, an insufficiency, maybe not a clinical deficiency, but an insufficiency in fat-soluble vitamins. And most people, what they do is they go and hyper-supplement with, with one of them, namely vitamin D. Now, vitamin D, while very powerful health properties, can be very disruptive when taken in, in, uh, in large doses with no other balancing metrics involved. 
So the same enzyme that degrades one fat-soluble vitamin will degrade all of them. And when you increase one to a certain, to a certain state, uh, a sort of level, you know, to hyperdosing one, it will, the same enzyme will degrade all of the other fat-soluble vitamins at the same speed, in, uh, which creates functional deficiencies in those other fat-soluble vitamins. So just looking at some of these basic, you know, uh, scenarios, we can see how, you know, the shotgun approach of just taking some of these known supplements might actually be causing more health woes than they'll be solving. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is if people are taking uh, vitamin D in large doses, that can then have an impact on things like vitamin A and E, for example, yeah. that are fat soluble as well, mm -hmm. and throw those out of kilter. Yeah. And when, you, for instance, if you have a, a, a disbalance between vitamin D and vitamin A, you'll automatically um, dysregulate the immune system because vitamin A and vitamin D have very strong relationship working tandem with immune functionality. In fact, vitamin A has a bigger response with things like uh, T helper cells, which will regulate immunity, especially within the gastrointestinal tract. Um, so what should they be doing then in terms of should they because I've you know, I've read some studies as well that indicate that actually you need to be careful about taking um, a kind of synthetic form multivitamin supplement that contains antioxidants like vitamin A, for example, um, which in synthetic form, sometimes actually the studies will indicate, and these are big sort of meta-analyses that yeah. actually um, the health outcomes are adverse. Um, mm -hmm. In some studies, it will show no better. And in some some studies, actually they have adverse impacts yeah. on longevity, for example. What would be your advice apart from trying to get as much of it from food as possible? Well, I mean, uh, so just uh, food-wise, you know, liver is the one of the or offal is one of the few sources of strong retinol vitamin a because we've also got to make a difference between retinol uh, retinoids and carotenoids carotenoids is the vitamin a you're going to get in pretty much all vegetable versions okay and that's pro vitamin a it's not actually vitamin a can be converted to retinols but it's not converted very well similarly to the re the, the the same sort of thing with ala omega-3 fatty acids from plant sources being converted into EPA and DHA, the more fishy uh, omega-3 sources, it doesn't convert very well. You know? So getting actual uh, animal-based fat, vitamin A, retinoids in your diet is, more, uh, is, is important as well. Now, then um, supplementation or, uh, is generally the best way of going about it. So for instance, you could have um, freeze-dried and powdered offal in supplement form. There, there's, okay. there's very good quality versions of that. Okay. Um, uh, I think there's a good supplement called Code Age that's quite uh, universally available, not too expensive, and they do some really high-quality versions of. Um, and you can also get, um, you know, I, if I, if I uh, suggest vitamin A to someone or, or, or fat-soluble vitamins, I normally suggest them in a complete profile. So... Uh, there's a Designs for Health supplement that I use, I suggest regularly, which has a full complement of A, D, E, and K2 together. Mm -hmm. So they balance each other out. So often what we're looking at when those looking at supplement studies, they will look at supplementing with vitamin A, but they will usually be supplementing with vitamin A in isolation. There's very few of those studies that are supplementing with vitamin A and then tracking all other micronutrient status. You know, 
um, which is often the problem that comes to a lot of nutritional studies. We look at things, and in fact, many things. We, it comes back to the whole point, the reason why, you know, hyper-focusing or hyper-specializing in one specific area can actually lead us to half-truths mm. because the human body doesn't operate in that way. But while we need to hyper-focus to get answers from certain questions, it can lead us into misleading answers at times. We need to be able to, to zoom in and take a step back. Uh, uh, both, both aspects are just as important. And the thing that people need to remember when they're looking at research is that the, the, it's less of a question whether the research paper was right, and it's more about a question of how can I make this research paper right and this one right, even though they conflict in information. There's always a unifying point between these, or normally there's a unifying point between multiple uh, papers that disagree on something. And it's because they're looking at it from a different angle and that we need to look at what actually connects them to make all of them true. And that's when you'll find it was because X, Y, and Z was out of place here and not, and not over here. Mm -hmm. okay. And so in terms of, for, for someone that's listening to this and they're maybe a bit concerned with everything or, you know, some people are very concerned with everything that's going on, that they may well catch the coronavirus. And it seems that, you know, the initial data that was coming forward was, that actually the elderly were more vulnerable, whereas now actually we're seeing um, increased incidences of younger people ending up in ICU, maybe not so necessarily losing their lives quite as often, but certainly there's a significant number of people with breathing difficulties and ending up in ICU. Um, these people that, you know, interviewed are, are saying or their family members are saying that they had no underlying health issues at all. I know when we were talking just briefly before the the podcast um, that you were saying sometimes people are, are unaware actually that they do have these problems and you've obviously mentioned there that someone who's overweight for example is very likely if they're over the sort of 25 for men and 30 percent for women body fat they're very likely to have something like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease but how would people what are the warning signs that you would encourage people to look for that might indicate that their micronutrient status isn't what it should be or that their body isn't kind of performing on all cylinders at this point? Well, this is a really difficult question because I have seen people who, uh, when we look objectively at their health, they're like, right, there's some really big problems going on here. And they're like, yeah, but I feel fine. You know, the feeling of, 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 uh, energy or health this is a very subjective thing and this is a, and also some people are more resilient than others you know how we how we color the world what kind of glasses we wear to see the world is a very subjective thing so this is a very difficult um question to answer accurately to in a global scale but i mean it i think the bigger problem that, that is actually apparent is that we as, uh, as, a, as a species, are now so used to existing with problems, we don't see them anymore. Now, if you, if you don't wake up with good energy, if you're feeling energy slumps in the afternoon, if you're having a gastrointestinal discomfort, bloating, gas, if you're burping after meals, you know, if you're having any form of uh, changes in stool, uh, stool consistency on a regular basis, you know, these things are people like, oh, well, I can live with it. It's not that bad. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't, it's, it, you know, it's not something that is affecting my life enough for me to want to make a change. 
these things are all early warning signs. And the thing is, we've been living with these early warning signs for decades. But it's just now, this, like this virus, like I said before, there's nothing new. This is just an, uh, made people acutely aware or acutely exposed the vulnerability that they have due to not looking after their health for so many years. Yeah. And it's just to do with how robust that person's individual system is at that current point in time when this unique, you know, this unique acute situation has come about. Yeah, although there are some people who I think feel that they were healthy, they were exercising a lot and have still been struck down, you know, like there was an, and maybe this is because it's not the healthy of, the, of sports, but, you know, there was an Ironman triathlete who was really surprised when he ended up in ICU. I would argue that actually Ironman in its own right as a sport is massively depleting someone's system and causing huge amounts of oxidative stress, particularly if they are not really refueling in the correct way and taking the right recovery. Um, yeah, no, completely. Um, I was going to say, uh, I mean, exercise by no means ever depletes the immune system. But that being said, if you are depleted in resources and you're not getting enough in, mm. exercise will deplete those resources to a point where the depletion in resources will affect your immune system. Yeah. So, um, again, if we, if we really look hard enough at most of these, uh, most of these subjects, you know, we'll find a reason why that might, that, that, that's probably happened. I mean, we have obviously to, to know we have to do the proper objective testing or we may even have had to had um, data from before they got sick in, re in reality to really make any real decisions or real statements about that. But we can always look for an explanation of why those things are happening. And normally those explanations make sense. You know, they have, uh, they have good grounding in foundational science. You know, it's never, nothing's, nothing's for free. Everything happens for a reason, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of biochemistry. You know, you don't just get sick because you, uh, you, you were just unlucky. It's not random. So one of the things that I know you specialize in and you've mentioned a few times so far is this concept of metabolic flexibility um, in terms of the ability to stay lean, I would see it, as also the ability to sometimes eat things that may not be without, like, you know, there are people out there, for example, who feel that they only need to look at something that's high in calories and then they're going to put on weight, whereas actually that shouldn't happen. And yeah. <clears throat> for those people who really do feel struck and stuck, and we know that, you know, blood, uh, blood sugar regulation and blood pressure regulation seems to be both risk factors with the coronavirus, the people who feel like no matter what they do, they just can't seem to lose weight. It won't come off. What would be your advice for them? Because I know there's a lot of people out there now who actually are looking at this period of quarantining thinking, I could actually get really healthy now. That was a really good time for me to look at it. Um, what, what mostly underlies that metabolic inflexibility where they feel really stuck? And so, they're probably not eating that much either. Yeah, so um, there's... What we really have to understand with metabolic flexibility comes down to a dysregulation of our capacity to balance energy need. Now, we, when we eat, we, we, we break down food and that releases energy into our system, into the blood. So if we simplify that just to blood sugar, of course, there's more than that that goes in there. But if we simplify it just to blood sugar for a moment to make it a nice, easy explanation. 
when we eat, we produce, we, we release blood sh uh, sugar into the blood. Great. We now have energy to do work. When we don't eat, when we fast, we have to find the energy from somewhere else. Now, the number one uh, hormone for releasing energy into the blood is cortisol and catecholamines such as adrenaline or noradrenaline. Yeah? So by fasting, we're technically increasing stress hormones. Now, fasting in itself is a brilliant tool for longevity and for improving health. But if we don't have the capacity to balance our internal stress systems, fasting can actually almost become a bigger problem than it actually solves. Yes? We don't have resources there for the ability to create cell turnover and to, to, to have the, the healing processes and restorative or growth processes occur, you know, then that becomes a problem. So one of the things that most people get wrong is that they think they're in a position where they need to eat less and move more. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and this is the, the basic advice that goes out across the fitness industry. And that's how we get healthier. We eat less and we move more. That's not entirely true because if you're in a position where you have lots of energy reserves in terms of, of fats and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and glycogen in tissues and muscle tissues themselves, bone tissue, connective tissue, these are all energy reserves technically to some extent. But if we, when most people, even triathletes, that are very, very lean. They have plenty of energy reserves in their system to go and complete that race and complete that distance. And fat is a very efficient fuel source in that way. So very few people are any, ever in a position where they actually are lacking an energy reserves. But many people, and this is very commonly known, studied, shown, thought of, accepted, many people have a lack of specific resources. Now, whether that would be certain minerals or vitamins or other micronutrients such as phytonutrients and so on, whether it would be something uh, from the amino acid pool, so they could have a reduced amino acid pool, which can happen in, in, in some dietary types, mainly vegans, vegetarians. I mean, that's not so much a common thing anymore because those uh, dietary types are now eating with better choices these days, but it's still something that can happen both in people dieting and both in people ha having reduced protein intake. These lack of resources could actually cause a, then a greater stress problem again. So what we're doing is we're exercising, which is increasing the stress. We're dieting by cutting our nutrient intake, which is decreasing the resources, further disbalancing the system and creating a uh, more exacerbating the health problems that we have to an even greater extent. So if we really want to improve our health, first, the best thing to do is find out where your health is. What status are you in? Do you need to do more fasting? Do you need to, do, to eat more regularly? What kind of foods do you need to eat more of because of certain micronutrient profiles and, and so on and so forth? Or to what kind of biological response you want to create, such as emptying fat from the liver or clearing the digestive tract or improving the microbiome, the flora through soluble fiber, so on and so forth. Finding out where your priorities lie is the first thing that most people need to do. And the second thing most people need to do is address the stress work balance uh, in, in relation to their priorities. Mm. 
Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that where um, I've had clients come to me and they are doing a lot of um, high intensity work. They're exercising more and more and more and they just can't understand why it's not budging. And actually when they start to reduce that overall stress, because obviously it is a form of stress in, in good amounts of exercise makes you stronger as we know. But if you're overdoing it and you're already under significant burden and you don't have enough resources, as you say, it becomes this very frustrating and compounding problem. Yeah, I and mean, there's, there's objective ways to measure this as well. I mean, that's some of the stuff that I specialize in most is metabolic analysis, uh, which is the use of uh, measuring how much oxygen that you consume versus how much carbon dioxide you create, uh, you create to measure the response of the mitochondria. So just again, for anyone who doesn't know mitochondria inside the cells, they produce energy. They produce energy by consuming oxygen, creating carbon dioxide and water. So when we measure this, we measure the indirect uh, energy production of every cell, bar red blood cells and you know, so on. Um, so using tests like this, we can see how your energy usage changes through activity. So from rest to light activity to moderate to high, in high intensity activity. And we can see when things like your anaerobic threshold start. So basically when you become carbohydrate dominant from your energy use, first when you're fat dominant and these changes can give us very strong indications on your exercise tolerance and how well your body will respond to intense exercise that's also another big big thing that helps a lot unfortunately during lockdown we won't be able to do run any of those tests because they are respiratory tests they are in in-person tests we can't run them but once lockdown is done and this is definitely a test that will be very valuable to lots of people in those situations yeah for sure and does that help them then to understand at what um at what kind of heart rate their body is actually burning fats and when it's starting to burn carbohydrates yeah so they can exercise within yeah. those parameters as well completely i mean I, uh, th this will give you a, a, a very uh, a very good uh, set of data to personalize not only, not only your exercise programs, but your dietary programs as well. Because this tells you if, you, if anyone uses heart rate zones to do training, such as a lot of like triathletes and, and uh, sort of uh, race type uh, sports or use to do their training, this gives you a direct, uh, a direct measurement of where your personal heart rate zones are, rather than making the standard equations. I had a triathlete come into me who was basically struggling to do work on the bike because when he used his zone two heart rate, he was unable to complete long distances like he should have been able to. When we actually measured this directly, we saw that his max heart rate on the bike was so much lower than say on the treadmill, you know, that his mechanical efficiency was only uh, so much that he actually needed to reduce the power output to be in his zone two areas. Okay. So that, we were able to get him to train at much longer ratios and therefore start making improvements on that zone two ratio and on his max heart rate for his bike work. So, you know, measuring these things directly can be very important in sports specific um, aspects for training, but um, more to the point for general population and general health, just understanding where, that, where, where those positions are gives you great uh, indication of, what, how hard you should be working in your exercise sessions to actually get the results you need rather than just going hell for leather and trying as hard as you can while it's commendable it may not be the right thing for you to do 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's when people can start to see their, um, their exercise improvements stagnate because they're actually not getting, they're not getting any better. Yeah, it's overtraining. Mm. Yeah. Overtraining completely. Well, in, in that example, they're spending much too long um, a period in a much higher zone output than they had thought, right? Yeah. Well, where, uh, or even training at a uh, uh, greater intensity than they have the resources to manage. Yeah. 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 And just to clarify, actually, we were talking, weren't we? We were actually going to be doing one of these together for people to be able to yeah. see um, how this test can really. So once... Um, once we're out of quarantine and lockdown yeah. and we can do that, um, then we can share that content in terms of, um, I think Chris is going to basically test me and see what my metabolic testing is like. Um, yeah. And um, okay. So that's, that's interesting. What about now it's in terms of gut health, I think people start to understand that as you've already mentioned, there's quite a few symptoms that they can um, appreciate that may not be normal. So it's not normal to have a change in bowel habits um, mm. on and off, particularly um, in consistency, um, bloating, um, also sort of any kind of excess wind is not good. But with the liver, how would they know that their liver may be underperforming and that they're not detoxifying effectively? I find um, sleep is one of the biggest indicators of liver. Okay. Um, uh, or, yeah, inability to sleep. Um, waking up too early or very light sleeping um, are all, for me, uh, symptoms of liver stress. You know, um, uh, Measurement-wise, simple measurements, easy measurements that we can do, blood glucose, fasting blood glucose, for me, is quite a good indicator of both stress status and liver status. You know, if we're seeing fast, elevated fasting blood glucose, so just to give people a range for a second, um, 5.0 uh, millimoles per liter is uh, 4.525 is the range that we would expect to see your fasting glucose. No matter what you eat the night before, it will not affect your fasting glucose because your fasting glucose is that. You've had an eight-hour fast to, to, to give a, an average number between your evening meal and you're waking up and taking your glucose measurement, which means no food should have an effect that long on your body. So your fasting glucose should be an indication of one, catecholamine um, circulation in the blood, and two, liver inflammatory status. And the other indicator is triglycerides. Fasting triglycerides are also a very good indicator of both liver and pancreas inflammatory status. Okay. So, so people who take their blood sugar in the morning, and what you're saying yeah. is if that's high after an overnight fast, that would be indicating that you're – because for me, that would be indicate – but there's two things that you've mentioned there. Yeah. There's the waking up early or the in, inability in, like, to fall into a deep sleep and have light mm -hmm. sleep, coupled with um, the higher blood sugar. To me, that shows signs of cortisol being high because obviously cortisol, for primal reasons, is of dumping course, sugar in and wakes you up. Yeah, there's many different moving parts to this. So when I say about um, the waking early in terms of liver strain, normally because any strain on liver will increase cortisol. Okay. Yeah, so um, a lot of those symptoms, a lot of those, uh, a lot of the responses we're looking at, yes, they will be related to cortisol, but that's because, you know, generally inflammation and strain in the liver will be very strongly correlated to increasing cortisol responses. 
Um, and then that's why uh, these liver responses also have quite a strong, a strong relation to adrenal responses. And going back to the heavy metals, for instance, if you put someone through chelation therapy and they don't have the, uh, and they have maybe a reduced capacity of adrenal gland health or liver health, or, or even worse, both, it, that's what probably puts people through the floor the most, you know, as in makes them worse. If you try and do a chelation therapy for heavy metals before resolving liver and adrenal health, you know, and then kidney health is also important in this, but I mean, they're the first two, you know, to, to resolve if you want to be able to do chelation therapy. Uh, and, you know, intestinal health is then important to be able to remove these things through bile and keep them out and not allow them to have toxic reabsorption due to slow motility or, to, or leaky gut to allow it back through that way. So there's many different moving parts always with every single symptom or health condition or problem that we're going to look to resolve. But we've got to look what, where the strongest correlations are for each thing. So uh, by no means is blood sugar, fasting blood sugar a direct measurement of liver health. In fact, fasting triglycerides is a much more direct measurement of, of liver health. Yes, but we, to, to make it more, uh, to make it a stronger indicator, we want to look at things in, in, in tandem together rather than looking at single markers. Single markers make sense only when you have a bigger picture beforehand. Single markers by themselves, in isolation entirely, have no, no context uh, whatsoever. They make no sense. I can't tell you anything from that because it, you, know, you don't have any other surrounding information with it. So do you have for people in terms of, and I know you were saying that obviously the metabolic test has to be done in clinic, but a lot of the other stuff you do is online. Um, do you have a set of tests that you think that people should do annually um, I certainly have tests that I run and run with my clients. What would be your advice to people listening in terms of the tests that they might run annually to make sure that everything is functioning well? Well, um, again, it depends on the individual, but um, uh, and also with the with the tests. Um, while some of them are in clinic, we still have lots of postal order tests that can be done now still as well. You know, finger prick blood tests. Um, saliva tests, urine tests, DNA tests, all these things can still be done now. Um, if a, 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 blood, a blood panel, general, generally blood tests um, are probably one of the most versatile tests that will suit most people in terms of finding out about their health on a yearly basis, as it were. Um, but it, it, it would depend on what that person's problem was to whether I would say that. Between metabolic analysis but I would suggest that on more than, more than once a year to really get a grasp because you've got to see how things are moving as well. There isn't really any one test that will just suffice to do it once. Most tests need to be done two or three times to see a progression so we know whether something is working or not. But blood tests are by far the most universal in terms of uh, the, what, if this type of information that we can get from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But this is in, I'm thinking more in like a healthier population, people who really want to keep on track and make sure that they're not developing micronutrient deficiencies, that they are getting enough. You know, obviously the food in itself is not necessarily as rich in, in nutrients as it could be. Um, so for people who just want to actually really, maybe they feel like they're in good health, but they want to make sure that they're checking off certain markers, um, kind of like an annual health check. 
Which... I mean, a, a, full, a full blood count is a fairly cheap blood test to run that will give you some good indications. But it, uh, because red blood cell health will change quite rapidly towards oxidative status. So if you're, if you're experiencing some inflammation, oxidative status, red blood cell health will change quite rapidly and it's quite, quite a cheap test. There's also another test that could be quite interesting to bring into the mix here, which is called the GHI test. Um, this is a glycemic health index test. Now, this measures basically the glycosylation, so the addition of carbohydrate chains onto specific immunoglobulin proteins. Immunoglobulin proteins are basically proteins of the immune system. Now, this is a really good indicator of chronic inflammation. So if we were looking at one test to see where you're moving on a yearly basis in terms of your health and your disease progression, this is actually probably the best one for healthy populations because we can then look to see whether or not their inflammatory status is moving in the right or wrong direction. And this is a GHI test? Yeah, GHI test. Do you recommend that over something like an HSCRP? Uh, yeah, so CRP, for instance, is an acute inflammatory test. Same mm. as the interleukin-6, all these things. They can be changed. You can pull a muscle, right, and have an elevated CRP. And pull elevate, yeah. Yeah, so this will not elevate. So um, if people are familiar with the uh, HPYC test, so, so blood sugar, the blood sugar test, that test doesn't change within like a day-to-day -day basis or in a month-to-month -month basis. That test will be done every three months at most because anything closer will be irrelevant, yes? Mm -hmm. uh, so that difference between testing CRP and GHI is the difference between testing, testing fasting blood glucose and oh, HPYC, okay. yeah? Okay. So, okay. yeah, so GHI would be a, a, a more steady test to look at in terms of information, and it will give you a strong, uh, it will measure directly chronic inflammation. It won't tell you what's inflamed, but it will be a direct measurement of it. Mm -hmm. You'll understand whether there is inflammation. And that yeah. combined with something like an HPA1C, so you can actually see how sugary you've been, whether that's through diet or and lifestyle or stress, um, is a good yes. indicator as well. Because that's not yes, no, definitely, definitely looking at these, um, uh, uh, these more uh, long-term markers like this uh, are good, uh, are very good ways of uh, looking at chronic status rather than acute status. But acute status is still very important to look at um, in regards to uh, what to do right now about something. Chronic status is more like, do I need to do something? Whereas acute status is, what do I need to do? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, this is much more immediate. Okay. Um, okay, very interesting. So, um, and then just to finish off, because I know you look at a lot, I do a lot with um, DNA testing as well. What have you found in terms of DNA testing to be most useful for people to understand yourself? Um, susceptibility to micronutrient deficiencies. Um, I think it's huge. I mean, if you're more susceptible to becoming deficient in certain micronutrients or you're less susceptible to becoming deficient in certain micronutrients, it does greatly affect the sort of decisions you make in terms of dietary choices. What types of foods are more needed and what types of foods are less needed? You know, this is a, a great, a great importance. And uh, another, another thing to that same note is microbiome testing. You know, um, looking at your microbiome profile, uh, you know, and what sort of environment that creates 
you know, because that gives you another indication on, uh, on many of the B vitamins, you know, uh, in, indication of whether, you know, you might need more B9, B12, so on and so forth, that we can create their K2. But also how, uh, how, how much need you'll have for short-chain fatty acids or soluble fiber because certain microbiome will be creating much higher levels of short-chain fatty acids, therefore protect you from inflammation in the bowel and keep your motility running well. Whereas other people have very low amounts. So either having a very diet very high in soluble fiber, which will very much change the profile of your diet if you have to have a, a diet very high in soluble fiber, which will help create these short-chain fatty acids or feed these uh, microbiome, that, that part of the microbiome with better efficacy, or whether you want to take supplements such as magnesium, calcium, or calcium, magnesium, butyrate, so a, a type of short-chain fatty acids. You know, so these sorts of things, are, again, become very important in deciding your overall digestive profile for longevity and optimal health ongoing. Yeah, for sure. I do think people need to, to look much more um, at the microbiome and also at DNA testing as well. I find that it's a really good way of finding out as well what your tolerance for things like carbohydrates and fats is as well and what your risk factors are for things like heart disease, diabetes, and also yeah. Alzheimer's as well. Long-term risk profiles, they're huge for. I mean, if, if people are looking in the long, long haul, then these two tests are a, a, a must. You know? mm. uh, if people want to know short-term uh, need, you know, then there's things like metabolic analysis, the sort of the, the blood the blood panels, the urine analysis, they become much stronger in terms of what do you need to do now in this, this second. And DNA and microbiome for me are much longer term profiles looking at how to make sure you live the longest possible time in good health. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so important as well, because often these things don't show up. Like we know with things like Alzheimer's, that it's probably um, changes that are starting to occur that fall under the radar again, you know, decades before and actually understanding your risk profile. Um, it was an eye opener for me when I was tested and discovered that I had one copy of APOE4. And, you know, it does make you think. And, and I think that's the thing is I find that people are compliant if they understand why it needs to be done. And these tests are a great you know, pretty affordable way of actually finding out your risk profile and it being meaningful for you to do something about it. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Where can people find more about you? I know you share quite a bit of content on Instagram. Can you tell them where, where to go? And um, I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Yeah, well, the, the website is uh, www.christianthompson.co.uk and uh, email address is just info at christianthompson.co.uk if they want to get hold of me. Um, I, I run a free group on Facebook called the uh, Superhuman Experiment, and uh, my Instagram, as uh, I'm sure you'll link the show notes, is just my name, Christian Thompson, then number nine. Um, and I'm always happy. I'm always sharing stuff there, and always happy to answer any comments or questions on those channels. So you know, just reach out if you've got any got anything you want to talk about. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.